we'll be in uh, Amos 7. So if you want to go ahead and turn there this morning, we'll start in Amos 7 and kind of work our way uh, just through these last three chapters, 7, 8, and 9 of Amos. And uh, we've kind of covered the first six chapters in those first two sermons uh, a few weeks ago, kind of the first weeks of October. Um, but as we're looking at this one this morning, uh, I've actually entitled this message, The Final Countdown, uh, really because of its emphasis on finality, everything that really we've talked about Amos uh, up until this point, uh, everything is sort of coming to God's providential conclusion. Now, if you look up the word finality, just I say a general definition, it's just simply the fact of something being complete and therefore irreversible. And although we maybe use this negatively sometimes, uh, in general, the finality of things can actually be a great source of um, closure is kind of a word I thought of, um, a great source of closure, or it can also be a means of helping us move forward in life. Um, the thought of a couple of things, uh, if you think about kind of the finality <coughs> of sports, the finishing or the end of a season kind of enables you as a fan to officially celebrate a great season. If you're a Rangers fan, you're celebrating the end of a season with, uh, I almost said a World Cup, that's funny, uh, the World Series. I see soccer is in my brain. So uh, with the World Series um, or a season also bring uh, or a season being over comforts you because of the pain of watching your team stumble through the season is finally over and you can carry the hope of there's always next year. Now that's something I say silly like sports, um, but there is also the finality of certain events in our life that can actually help us move forward in times of loss or hardship. It's interesting that many people have noted that the finality of something like a funeral service or a celebration of life for a loved one has actually helped them work through grief, that the finality of a service at times has helped people have uh, sort of make acceptance and moving forward a little bit easier, even though, of course, that would be a, a difficult thing to be dealing with anyways. Um, but I also note this, that it's the finality is not just in painful experiences, but even in good experiences uh, that life, uh, the finality of those experiences can bring great peace or great joy. Um, for me, I remember the nerves uh, of planning and preparing to propose to my wife. So buying the ring uh, and kind of getting all the details, you know, organized leading up to the moment. Um, but I wrote the finality of a simple yes with, I don't think there was any hesitation, I don't remember any, um, but the finality of a simple yes just brought so much peace to my heart, uh, at least with the details of everything. Um, and I even wrote, the, of course, the finality of the I do's that follow months later um, are also a great source of joy as well. So obviously we're circling this idea of finality and how it pushes us to grow or it pushes us to move forward. If something is inevitable, if it's final, it does force us to take it seriously. Now sadly, shifting to Amos, what we find in the closing chapters of Amos is that the people are still not taking God seriously. This reality is actually exposed by one man's public response to Amos that we'll look at this morning, and it shows us why that the coming oppression and the coming captivity by Assyria was so necessary and was justified. 
So if you remember several weeks ago, we started with the overview of Israel's history all the way up to Amos's arrival and his ministry. Remember that Israel split into two separate nations around 975 BC, so that was after David and Solomon had reigned, and it was under the king Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son. Now Amos, so that's 975 BC, and remember, Amos shows up around 760 BC. So that, again, just remembering back, it reminds us that God has given this, the northern nation, two centuries, so over 200 years, to listen to the warning of prophets, to even study and go back to God's word and seeing how they were violating that, really to stop living in direct rebellion against God and to repent and make things right. So they've had over 200 years to do that. And as we've noted, When you study the book of Amos, his message from God, it is one of the most severe and most direct given by any Old Testament prophet. And as we've seen in in chapters 1 through 6 of Amos, his message is actually geared towards exposing the rotten fruit of people's lives and digging into the deeper-seated roots of a casual attitude towards God and a casual attitude towards his word. But what's interesting, again, ultimately his goal and desire was to help these people see their true need of God and to cast off this casual attitude and to actually grow past the syncretism of self-worship and sort of that shallow obedience. What we'll find this morning in the closing chapters is Amos emphasizes on uh, the, the finality of God's judgment, the fact that it was inevitable. But what's really neat, and you kind of heard it at the end of the scripture reading um, from Calvin this morning, that Amos actually ends his message with a glimmer of hope and sharing what was the finality of God's promise to redeem and rescue his faithful remnant. Although Amos spends the majority of his time communicating to Israel how serious the situation was, he never actually loses sight of God's grace, of God's mercy, and the promise that he had given to save and protect his children, to redeem and lift up those that were willing to humble themselves before him. So both in judgment, and as we'll see it towards the end in redemption, the closing chapters of Amos place a heavy emphasis on the finality of events that were coming. Amos's goal was to clarify the nation's true state before God, which obviously we've seen isn't good, uh, but we'll actually see clearly, uh, we'll see that clearly illustrated in chapter 7 by the head priest's response to Amos' message so, so far. Um, but before we get to that conversation, it's a really um, critical conversation in the book as a whole, we actually find Amos giving some description of Uh, It's these five visions of destruction. So when Amos was called by God when he was in Judah, God actually gave him, of course, this message to share, but he also gave him five clear visions that represented God's unavoidable judgment on these people for arrogantly and casually rejecting him. So when we dive into chapter 7, before we get to some of that key key conversations, uh, we actually see the first three of these five visions described. So I'm going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll kind of dive into those uh, for a couple minutes. So chapter 7, starting in verse 1, "'Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. 
And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord. So this is the covering of the first two plagues. It's the locusts or the grasshoppers. It's the same thing. Um, But the locusts, the grasshoppers, uh, that's the first one. And then the second one is the fire. And it is important to note, we're going to circle back to this, but these judgments are supposed to echo back judgments on Egypt, which if you study a lot of Amos, you actually do see this comparison or it's supposed to, the imagery is supposed to kind of remind you of the judgment on Egypt. And now that similar judgment is coming on Israel or the northern nation of Israel. We're going to come back to that in a minute because you're going to see Exodus come back up um, in some of what Amos talks about. Uh, But to get on this first one, the locusts in verses one through three, uh, they fly in and they eat everything. So that's a little bit of an expected. You're like, yeah, locusts, they eat stuff, they make stuff hard. Got it. But there is a detail, a really important detail that you can miss if you're just sort of zipping through the section. You'll notice at the end of verse one, that he actually says that this, these locusts, these grasshoppers are coming during the latter growth, and he says, after the king's mowings. So this isn't just locusts eating everything. Uh, the king's mowings is a reference to like that first harvest. The first round would go to the king as a tax. So that first king's mowings, they mow, give that to the, give that to the king, and then everything that's left is what they got to keep. So they would either sell it or obviously eat it for survival. So he says these locusts come in after the king's mowings. So you have 100%, the percentage is given to the king, and then what they have left is theirs, and that's when the locusts show up. So this isn't just, oh yeah, the locusts, they're bad. This is everything that's left, you've given it to the king, and everything that's left is gone. So again, you're getting to this idea of the seriousness of the situation. The idea was that after this judgment, there's nothing left. They've given their tax to the king, and everything that was left is now consumed by locusts, so they literally have nothing. Going back to the idea of finality, right? When God's judgment comes, he's telling them there will be nothing left. And it's, again, illustrating how serious the situation was for these people trying to wake them up. You see a very similar illustration in the next vision in verses five, uh, 4, 5, and 6 of this fire. Now notice it, the fire not only devours the land, but it says it also destroys the great deep. And this is a reference to these deeper sources of water. So now it's linked to survival. So food and water, the things you need to survive, this judgment has wiped everything out. So, and the idea of we can make it, it's not a big deal, which actually you do see in chapter 9 that we'll get to. He's just trying to tell them when God's judgment comes, there's going to be nothing left to survive on. You, you are helpless. So both of these are important because they are tied to what Assyria will do to this nation in less than 40 years from, from this time. The land is ravished by the fire of wars and conflicts. 
The crops and food are taken out for their own gain and benefit, and very few people were left in the land after taken into captivity, and those that were left were oppressed by harsh taxes and an authoritarian rule. Now, this is fascinating because you can follow those principles all the way up to the Roman occupation era 700 years later, where some of this judgment carries into some of that as well. Now, we do notice that Amos prays and intercedes, right? So he steps in both times for these, and he intercedes on behalf of Israel. And I do note, we'll come to this, but you really see Amos's heart for his people. A lot of times you study Amos and people are like, man, this dude is just ripping it, like, oh, you know. But really what's important to see here is this heart for his own people, his heart for their help, his heart for uh, just to intercede on their behalf. Now, it says that in this intercession... God repents, and I just know this is why word study is important, because the Hebrew word there is not that God changed his mind, but the idea is that he, God for a time, so temporarily, relented of these judgments. So this, this relenting, or for a time, relenting of the judgments is actually an example of God's continued patience and grace with these people. Now, how does this echo Exodus? Because we're following back to this, this imagery that you do find. Remember in Exodus 32 that the people are, the, the golden calf, they're worshiping the golden calf, and God comes down and he's like, I'm going to wipe out this generation. It's over, and we're going to start over with you, Moses, basically, and we're going to move forward. I'm going to wipe out this generation. And of course, Moses intercedes, and God decides uh, there's this sort of relenting of the judgment for a time. Now, there's two important connecting points, because one, remember in Exodus 32, it's the golden calf. And if you recall from the first message, what was it that Jeroboam I set up in Bethel as an idol for, for worship? It was a golden calf. So they're still worshiping golden calves at Bethel. So that's one important connection. But the second one is looking back at Exodus that God was going to wipe out the, that generation from the foot of Sinai. But the question is, did he change his mind? Because this is where sometimes people get a little confused. But recognize that he didn't change his mind or stop, but he also at that time relented temporarily of that judgment. Because I want you to note that that was the same generation that died in the wilderness while they were wandering for 40 years. That generation was still wiped out. God's judgment was still executed, but the patience to give that generation more time glorifies God. He, he, he relented for a time on behalf of the intercession of Moses. And I use that as an illustration to pull back to Amos because the judgments that were coming were still going to come. But because Amos interceded, God relented for a time and gave them over four decades longer to repent and to get right before the Assyrians ever show up. So just like in Exodus 32, right here, this is a great example that magnifies and glorifies God's mercy on his people. Amos is illustrating again grace and patience that God is giving because of his love for his people. But I do want you to notice that the judgments do still happen. Yes, God is patient, but his holiness demanded that they be held responsible Although graciously given more time than they deserved, the judgment for their decisions and for their sin would not be avoided. So we step back and we ask, what's maybe a practical connecting point for us today? We do recognize, and we know this very clearly from Romans 1 and 2, that God does reveal himself to everyone in some way. God gives individuals time, often an entire lifetime, to experience the blessings of life. 
not just in experiencing good things, but even just in the fact of being alive, which I would say being alive is a blessing as far as I know. Uh, but being alive, that, that is a blessing. But I want you to recognize that in the end, everyone must answer to God for their decision to either accept or reject him. Yes, God is completely sovereign and salvation is his work and not ours. But scripture clearly teaches that God holds men individually responsible for their sin. So to say all that to say, yes, God is good, God is gracious, and God is loving. But he is simultaneously holy, perfect, and just. And he does not and will not leave sin undealt with. Now what about for today? And I just kind of wrote this. um, Realize that we are doing no one any favors by showing tolerance or acceptance of choices, behaviors, or lifestyles that God abhors. Be willing to call sin what it is, but do it with a heart or a love for the people that you're trying to reach, caring about their eternal destination more than a temporal relationship or connection. And we tie this well into Amos, right? You see Amos's love for his people. It is seen in this prayer. It's seen in his intercession for them. But I want you to notice that he, Amos, does nothing to accept or tolerate the sins of the people. He intercedes to ask God to graciously give them time, to give them more time to repent. And obviously God does, which shows the heart of God. But again, recognize that judgment for these sins was still going to come. This is exactly what God clarifies to Amos in the next vision of the plumb line. So look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again, I will not again pass by them anymore. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So there are various uses of plumb lines. So if you study scripture and in the Psalms, sometimes it comes up of like plumbing the depths and things. So there was use in sailing uh, and, and, you know, if you're out on the water. Uh, but this reference was a specific reference to a plumb line's use in architecture and construction. So a plumb line would be used in in a construction project, whether it was a city wall, um, just a general structure, or even a home, but they would use a plumb line and hang it from the top, and it was basically just a way of exposing if the wall is crooked. So you'd hang this plumb line, it would hold straight, and you'd be able to see if a wall was crooked or if there were some errors within it. So a plumb line, again, was used to ensure that a wall was being built correctly or that it was built straight, but it would also reveal an uneven wall, which actually would expose what was considered catastrophic errors. Uh, If you watch sports on any level, you always hear this phrase, right? The ball doesn't lie, right? The ball doesn't lie, or the replay doesn't lie. Um, Or even in business sometimes, right? There's like the numbers never lie. The whole point here with the plumb line is the, the plumb line don't lie. The plumb line doesn't lie. Typically, the only solution to the errors exposed by a plumb line in construction would be to stop construction, 
to tear down what had been built and to start all over again, or at the very least to break the wall down to the point of error and to rebuild and fix from that point. And that is exactly what God is telling and showing Amos through this vision. The judgment that was coming could not be avoided. They had been given time and grace to correct the errors, either by responding to prophets that God had sent or by actually reading and knowing what God had said himself in Scripture. And I know we noted this before, but remember that this time in Israel's history, they had a large portion of the Old Testament. So they had plenty to know and to understand uh, what God expected, but of course they'd neglected it. So although God had been gracious and was showing patience towards these people, his judgment for sin was still on the horizon and it was inevitable. Now remember, Amos's heart and God's desire for the harshness of this message, the whole point was to, to shake them awake. They needed to know how serious the situation was, and the end goal was ultimately for them to repent, to humble themselves before God, and to experience his salvation. And we've seen that a few times up until this point um, in different chapters, but you do actually see it very clearly at the end of 9. Although temporal deliverance was out of the question, the eternal deliverance from sin and condemnation was available to those who were willing to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, and he would lift them up. So then the real question becomes, how did the people respond? Because you get to chapter 7, you're about halfway through 7 when you read through verse 9, and you, I mean, there's been a lot exposed. There's a lot that's been said, a lot of things that have been talked about, and it does kind of bring up the question, how did the people respond? Like, how were they, how were they handling this message? Well, one man steps up and clearly illustrates exactly what the people thought of Amos and what they thought of his message from God. So look at verses 10 through 13. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land, and it's like the people, is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. So verses 10 and 11 show that everyone understood exactly what Amos is saying. And I think this is really, really important. Because when you look at verse 11, what does he say? Amos says, we're going to be taken captive. He says, we're going to be defeated militarily and politically. So to be clear, the people understand the message. They're, they're not like, what is this, visions of grasshoppers? Like they're, they're not confused about everything that he said. They understand the message that's being brought. You're wrong with God. Your worship isn't, isn't acceptable. The syncretism is wrong. And captivity, judgment is coming as a means of captivity. So the people completely understand the message. And verse 11, they knew God's judgment and they knew what it meant. But the response was what? And he says, that, right, at the, the end of verse 10, the land is not able to bear his words. The response was, oh, we don't like that. Ooh, ugh, you know, that makes me uncomfortable, right? They, they didn't like it. They couldn't bear it. 
And I want to remind you of Amos' words from chapter 4 and chapter 6. Do you remember the, the cows of Bashan, right? The luxury, like the Mercedes lines of cows. And it was the whole point was to illustrate this desire for comfort and for ease. So this whole illustration, right? Remember he says, woe to you that are at ease. Woe to you that seek comfort over righteousness. Woe to you that seek ease over a right standing before God. Amaziah and what he has just said has proven that Amos's evaluations from chapters 1 through 6 are 100% accurate. They get it. They understand it. They know what it means. And their response is, oh, I'm, nope, I'm good. Like, they're, they're, they can't bear it. They don't want to bear it. They don't want to listen to it. And that's what he's just clarified easily. They are more concerned with personal comfort and ease than they are with repenting and truly being right with God. Going back to the danger of syncretism, of self-worship, the deception, the delusion, it's all proven in just a few words by one man. So although the people are uncomfortable with what Amos is exposing, they ultimately chose and choose to stay unmoved by God's clear conviction. In verse 13, Amaziah describes the northern kingdom's capital as a place for royalty, so that's luxury, and a sanctuary for peace and comfort. So his whole thing is like, is like, dude, you're messing with the room, right? You just, the vibe of Bethel, you just threw it off, man. What are you doing? Like that, his whole thing is you're making people uncomfortable. You're throwing off the room. What are you doing? And again, this just illustrates the true spiritual condition of the entire nation. So as we transition to Amos' statements about himself, we actually find in verse 12 that Amaziah is assuming that Amos is a prophet so that he can gain some power and influence and wealth. So he has this idea, go back to your land, and that's where you can eat bread. And the idea is you go to your land and prophesy, make money, that's where you're going to make the dough, is kind of what he's pushing him towards. So he's assuming that Amos is just a, a rookie prophet who's prophesying to try to gain influence, wealth, or just to gain something for himself. Now, this is important because you actually are finding that apparently this is why Amaziah himself was a priest, because it gave him a connection to the king. So, right, he gets uncomfortable. What's the first thing he does? He runs to dad, right? He runs to the king. So he's uncomfortable, and the priest runs. He gets he has that direct line. Like, I've got, I've got the king on speed dial. Jeroboam, this guy's messing with the room. He's talking bad about you. He's trying to get a... So he, he's got this connection, this influence, and, of course, this power uh, and wealth and influence and everything that would have come along with that. And, again, you do see in Amaziah the self-worship and the personal prophet. So he's basically, as you're looking at this response to Amos, he's telling him, dude, you are a Rook, you, you made a rookie mistake. You showed up to a place that's not your country. You're supposed to give a message that people like. So he tells him, go to your nation, switch the message up a little bit, you know, make it a little more user-friendly, and then maybe you can make some dough as a prophet. But just rookie mistake, dude, you need to. So he's really just critiquing him, criticizing him, telling him to be quiet and get back to his own hometown. Amaziah is assuming that Amos is just like him. And again, to another reference in Numbers, right? Balaam, a prophet for hire. He was a prophet, but it was just for what he could gain out of it. Amaziah is a type of Balaam, and he's just sort of assuming that Amos is just like him. He's in it for the money. So how does Amos respond? And I, I just call this the ultimate mic drop. So this is Amos, verse 14 to 17, his response to Amaziah. Then Amos, then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. 
But I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. I'm a, I'm a shepherd and a farmer. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be an harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by, by line. And thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his, of his land. Amos completely decimates Amaziah in just a few sentences. But I want you to recognize his goal was, was not just to expose, but he was trying to drive Amaziah and those listening to realize how serious the situation really was, something that they are clearly missing. Amos displays an incredible amount of boldness here in the face of an ignorant and hostile crowd. But there's some great encouraging realities within his obedience, within his faithfulness, and with his, within his attitude and this humility. Amos's boldness was not a personality trait, but it was the fruit of his confidence in the God who had called him to this work. He had nothing to rely on but the God that called him to this task. And he notes, I, I'm a farmer and I'm a shepherd. I was farming and shepherding like I have always done. And I don't have training as a prophet. I'm, I've never served as a prophet. I'm not even related to prophets. I'm a farmer, man. <laughs> but God called me to share this message. And by the way, here's the message. So he, he doesn't even glorify himself, but he steps back. And what does he say? Thus saith the Lord. He doesn't rely on anything about himself, not his personality, not his giftedness, not his talents, not anything. But the fruit, the, the fruit of this confidence in God was that he was able to be bold, to be faithful, and to do it with humility and confidence. We often want to believe that nothing can or will shake our confidence. But it's weird, and I, know, I don't know if you found this, how sometimes the strangest of things or even the most random conversations or experiences can bring you to your knees. They can cause you to question or wonder about what you're doing, why you're doing it, or even how you're doing it. But I want to challenge you, and, and myself as well, use those moments and experiences to reset and to remind yourself of the God that you serve and the power and purpose of his sovereignty to have placed you exactly where you are right now. What you find in Amos is that he was not shaken by the attitude of his hearers because ultimately he wasn't there for them. He was seeking to be faithful to the call that God had placed on his life. And in fulfilling that call with boldness and humility, he found great peace and confidence to do what God had enabled him to do in the first place. Now, I kind of wrote this. I don't, I don't mean this to be belittling in any way, so hopefully Amos will forgive me in heaven someday. Um, but when you study Amos, there is nothing spectacular about him. Like in his life, he's like, I'm a farmer, I'm a shepherd, that, that's what I do. There's nothing crazy that stands out about him except his passion to be faithful to God. And that is something, and I say this, that anyone and everyone can do. What do we want to hear in heaven? 
Well done, thou good and what? Faithful servant. Anybody can be faithful. You don't have to have the personality. You don't have to have, and again, this doesn't mean we don't seek to grow, to change, to improve. We all need to grow. We all need to mature. We all need to look at what we're doing, improve and grow to make sure that our lives honor and please God. But this baseline idea of faithfulness, anyone can be faithful. And that's what stands out about Amos, his passion to be faithful to God. And that is something that anyone and everyone who is willing to humble themselves before God is capable of, because only God can enable this kind of unshakable faithfulness in his children. When you look at 16 and 17, uh, it was, again, you look at 16 and you're like, wow, that was pretty harsh on your kids, pretty harsh about your wife. But the whole point was to illustrate captivity. You're not going to have anything that's yours. Everything's going to be taken away. And again, illustrating the seriousness of the, of the events that were coming. The message that Amos gives, he's not attacking or like cursing Amaziah. Amos was making sure that they all knew what was coming and that it was going to impact everyone. You think of the words of Christ, right? What does it matter if you should gain the world but lose your soul? Amaziah had just exposed his heart, that he valued comfort and ease more than being right with God. Similar right to the rich young ruler talking with Jesus. He's confronted with his, this condemning reality, but seemingly has the same response. He walks away, choosing to keep his stuff and his comfort instead of repenting before a holy and gracious God. Now, this brings us to the final two visions of destruction of the five that Amos gives in chapters 8 and 9. We're actually just going to hit a few highlight verses from 8 and 9 uh, because ultimately their purpose is to further illustrate the same message as the plumb line vision uh, concluded, that God's judgment is inevitable. So if you read 8, the vision that comes of the summer fruit, the point is it's like a re-illustration of the plumb line. And then as you get into chapter 9, the fifth vision, it's the same point. The plumb line, God's judgment is serious and it's inevitable. So we're just going to hit a few highlight verses. But I do want to note so that you're kind of looking for it as we're going into this. What we find in Amos's message as he's closing out, that he actually concludes with an eternal hope of redemption and restoration, even though temporally, temporally in this life, the consequences for their sin were unavoidable. So Amos uses the temporal consequences of sin now to help illustrate the reality of an eternal consequence for sin. But that reality is shared by closing his message out, excuse me, with a hope, uh, with a message of hope for eternity, with what is one of the most concise, and I just wrote, and one of the coolest, references to Jesus and the restoration that only he can provide for for his people. So look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at 11 and 12 as well. So chapter 8, starting in verse 1, thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. Then look at verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. So if you read, I say, the rest of chapter 8, what you'll find is a a summary of what he had already said in chapters 2 through 6. So if you read 8, 1 through 14, you're going to see a lot of the same themes repeated that he brought up in the first six chapters. So he talks about their poor treatment of others and how it exposed their true heart. He talks about their pursuit of self-worship. He talks about the syncretism of pretending to worship God, and it wasn't acceptable. And again, when you're looking at all of this repeating, it's coming back to the image of the summer fruit. Now again, summer fruit, basic idea is you are ripe for judgment. But again, little detail that makes it a little bit heavier. Summer fruit was, uh, so if you look at Israel's uh, like our, our agricultural calendar, it goes or went, at least in this time, from September to August. So when he says summer fruit, he's referencing that last harvest towards like the end of July and August. It's the end of the calendar, the last harvest, the summer fruit. So what's it going back to? Finality. You're at the end of your agricultural calendar. You have the summer fruit. There is nothing beyond this. It's over. You're ripe for judgment, and nothing is coming after. So again, you see that finality adding just a little bit of a weight to what he's talking about. So God's judgment is concrete, and it was imminent. There's no time left. And this was Amos's way of telling these people, repent, right? Today is the day of salvation. Respond to God in humility while you still can. The final vision in verse 9 is a little bit, we say, more intense of anything given so far. And the vision is actually of God literally stepping down into Israel and just destroying it completely. So look at uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 9. This is the fifth vision. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. And he said, smite the lintel of the door that the posts may shake and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. And he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out, uh, take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. So again, you see this heavy, and you go all the way to verse 10, and this vision is a graphic demonstration of what was going to happen and what did happen by Assyria to Israel in 721 BC, and that's about 40 years from this time. So although it starts to feel like Amos is going to finish with this heavy graphic final warning, which he does in a way, God instructs Amos to close out his message with a reminder of God's promise, the covenant that he had made with his people. And it's the promise of a redeemer, the promise actually of Jesus Christ and his eternal reign as as king and savior of his people. Now, I want to note there is some imagery here of God stepping down and enacting judgment. This is, interestingly enough, connected to Revelation, this very intense graphic stepping down of God to enact judgment. So immediately, even in reading 9, you're seeing this imagery, this prophetic imagery, pushing all the way to the end of Scripture in Revelation. So you see that imagery, but then there's the transition, right, of 
hope and redemption and restoration that only God can provide. So seeing the hope of eternal restoration in chapters 8 and 9, Amos at the end of 9, or uh, it's some of what uh, Kelvin read. So 11, or I'm sorry, um, like 8, 9, and 10, you see this sort of passive reference to the preservation of God's faithful remnant that you do see pop up throughout the Old Testament. So he uses this sort of passive reference to God's uh, faithful remnant, and then he goes into this incredible, full-blown prophetic statements regarding Jesus, regarding his eternal redemptive work, and his eternal reign as God and creator. So look at verses 11 through 15, and this is how he finishes his message to this nation. In that day, so after this destruction, and that day will I raise up, the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins. And I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Verse 13, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes uh, overtake him that soweth seed. The mountains shall drip, drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. And that's the end of his message. Now, it's really cool. As you look at verses 11 and 12, he references the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The bringing up of the ruins. Uh, and so you see, uh, and then the connection point to his redemptive work, this raising up, he says, would benefit everyone, not just Israel, and this is important because people have looked at this and like, what does it mean? What does it not mean? But the absolute confirmation that he's talking about the redemption of Jesus Christ being available for everyone, Jews and Gentiles, is confirmed in Acts 15. Now, you don't have to turn there, but you remember Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council, right? And they're talking about this conflict that was going on between Jews and Gentiles. Should we convert them? Should we not? Da, 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 da. And James, at the end of the council, steps up and what does he say? He quotes this passage from Amos. And says the gospel, I mean, remember what Amos said? The gospel is going to be for everybody. God's work is going to be for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. So it's really cool to see how James quotes Amos at the conclusion of that council to make the point that basically the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation is for all people that are willing to humble and submit themselves to him, not, not just the Jews, it's Jews and Gentiles. When you look at verse 13 then, he refers to the blessings of God being poured out over the lives of his people. Verse 14, it's a promise of redemption from captivity, both literally and spiritually, because they are delivered from captivity eventually, but then spiritually, right, God's salvation delivers us from the power and the dominion of sin, both now and in eternity. Figurative, figuratively, the land that was not ours because of the condemnation of sin, he says, now through God's restoration is a place of blessing and provision and beyond anything that we can comprehend. When he talks about the, the treader of grapes overtakes the sower, the plowman overtakes the reaper, the idea is that the harvest is so full and so bountiful that this guy is coming to the end of his harvest and the next guy is trying to come in and he's like, dude, it's my turn. He's like, I know, I'm still harvesting. Like there's so much 
much food that the architectural or the ag- agricultural calendar is just, it becomes gone because everything's just, there's just so much. So this overflowing blessing that you see in verse 14. But again, how do we know that this is a reference to eternity and not just now? And that's why 15, verse 15 is so critical because it says, I'm going to plant you in the land and you shall no more be you shall no more, no more be pulled up out of the land which I have given them, saith the Lord God. When God saves you, when he delivers you, nothing and no one can take that away. He is sovereign, his reign is sovereign, and it will be forever and ever. As Jesus says himself in John 10, when I save you, right, when I hold you, nothing can pluck you out of my hand. God saves and God secures us for all eternity. These statements are not about temporal things, and I think that's important. And we do recognize, of course, that serving God now is certainly a blessing. But the focal point of this closing reminder is that God loved these people, and he wanted them to experience his eternal blessings through the promise that he'd made of an eternal restoration and redemption. It was a reminder of the promise that God made to David, that his kingship would never end, not because of David, but because Christ in David's lineage will rule and reign forever. This ties all the way into the future millennial reign on earth and his eternal reign in the new heaven and new earth that are referenced at the end of Revelation as well. So again, just showing some of those prophetic connections. So as we come to the end of what is at times considered one of the most harsh Old Testament prophets, in the closing words of Amos, we find one of the most concise and succinct references to God's promise of a redeemer, the preservation of the Davidic line of kingship through Christ, the establishment of God's kingdom, the representation of all people of all races, nations, and tongues in this redemption, and by the way, (laughs) the millennial and the eternal kingdom of God in which Christ himself will reign over perfectly forever. And as we finish this up, the final verses of Amos bring us to one final thought. Where do you stand with God eternally? Are you ignoring his warnings of judgment and conviction because you want to stay comfortable? Or... Are you willing to trust his promises to obey him faithfully and to repent humbly before his throne? And I just say this, if you are hearing this, know that God is graciously giving you time. But Amos also reminds us all to not waste that time, but rather to use it to be faithful to God, the God that has called us into his family and called us to faithfully, like Amos, Proclaim his message of redemption to a lost, dying, and ignorant world. And so in closing with Amos, I just want to challenge all of us to seek to take that calling more seriously, but to add to that, take it more seriously while there is still time to do so.